would invite you to please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. And as you're turning, let me remind parents that uh, they're invited to dismiss their children ages 4 to 6 for children's worship training. And the children will be brought back, uh, Lord willing, at 1035. As you're turning, Hebrews chapter 7 is our morning text. Uh, You might take a sneak peek over into the evening worship service and see that the sermon will be in the evening on Psalm 53 and it will be no good. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 7, hear the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case... Tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors, ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been obtainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, 
A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask now that your word would be open to us. We come confessing that these are heavenly matters, and they deal with the history and sweep of redemptive history, and so they are hard for us to grasp. But we thank you that the author of the epistle to the Hebrews carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired by that same one who also inspired Moses of old, who indeed has given all of the Mosaic law and has sent his Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, into the world. We pray that that one true God would indeed aid us by his Holy Spirit that we might understand and apply your word to heart and life and we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in Hebrews this week because both your senior pastor, Fred Greco, and myself keep open uh, books of the Bible for morning and evening worship. And so we continue in the next chapter, uh, the next section of the story of the book of Hebrews. Oh, we have marched through six chapters before. And we must keep them in mind as we come to this chapter to properly appreciate it. In chapter 1, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is superior to angels. And that was very relevant to to the audience that first received this epistle because in that day and age, angels were all the rage. And people considered angels almost to be above the promised Messiah who would come. 
Chapter 2 tells us that not only is he superior to angels and therefore divine, but Jesus is also human, sharing in our flesh and blood, and therefore able to propitiate the wrath of God for sinners like us. What more is there to say? Well, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews in the third chapter tells us that Jesus is superior even to Moses, the great lawgiver. Moses, the one who led his people out of Egypt and to the promised land. And in chapter 4, he tells us that Jesus is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That in his incarnation, in taking on our flesh, he also took on something of human weaknesses, not moral, but those ontological, those living sorts of weaknesses that we all encounter each day. He lived not in the Garden of Eden, but he lived in a fallen and broken world. And so he understands your life and the difficulties that you face. In chapter 5, the author reassures us by telling us that Jesus is a high priest called by God. He did not call himself to this service, but he was appointed by his heavenly Father. And then finally, in chapter 6, we hear that Jesus is the high priest that you and I both need, that there's nothing too hard for him, that he is great and mighty and able to save. And so when we come to chapter 7, we face something of a little digression. There is a digression in order to support the point of the chapter before. Yes, Jesus is the priest that we need, but now we're told in chapter 7 why he's the priest that we need. Here we are told, and this morning we will see, that Jesus is the absolute best priest of all. You've never met a priest better than Jesus Christ. Now the way the author of the epistle to the Hebrews makes his argument for us is to go back to the book of Genesis. He doesn't speak from contemporary culture. He doesn't... uh, tweet a whole series of what he has recently done that day. No, what he does is he goes back. He goes back to the Word of God, back to that inspired text which God has given so that his people might know him better and themselves better and how to live to his glory. And he points us all the way back to Genesis chapter 14 and speaks of one named Melchizedek, who was a great Old Testament priest. You see, Genesis chapter 14 is the story which speaks of Lot and of Abraham and of the war of the kings. Lot having remained behind in the wicked cities found himself in great trouble, captured, hauled off his booty, he and his family. The surrounding kings were alerted to this and Abraham himself was told that His relative, his kith and kin had been taken. And so he summoned all of his servants to battle. Over 300 men with Abraham went and chased the one who had captured Lot and his family. They went in hot pursuit and they defeated that array of kings which stood against him. And so, with the smoke of the victory of battle rising, with Lot and his family having made safe, Abraham, Father Abraham, went and visited Melchizedek, who is said to be both a king and a priest of God. 
Look at chapter 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, Melchizedek's name is not mentioned any earlier than Genesis chapter 14. It is mentioned later under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of Psalms and also in the epistle to the Hebrews. And in Hebrews, we get not only references back to Genesis 14, but also quotations from the Psalms where Melchizedek is mentioned. So we're in the text that gives us the front row seat on the entire meaning of the movie that was acted out in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek is a king. And he's a king not just in theory, not just on paper. He was a real man with a real city called Salem that he ruled over and was in charge of. And if that city sounds familiar, the city of Salem, uh, that's because of the overtone connection and geographic connection to that place later called Jerusalem. And so it's a place of great significance from which he comes. And it's from the earliest origins of our knowledge of the city of Jerusalem uh, that Melchizedek is drawn from. But he is not just a king. You know, there are a lot of kings. Uh, the Valley of the Kings, the War of the Kings. There are many kings in this area at this time. But he is not just a king. He holds a second office. And that makes him very unique. He is also one who is a priest. We don't find in the pages of Scripture people holding more than one office except for very unique reasons on very special occasions. There was another king prophet. His name was David. And his capital was also eventually in Jerusalem. And David, the king prophet, was one who both ruled his people and spoke and sang the word of God for them. Uh, that word was written down and used in the tabernacle complex. It would echo eventually through the halls of the temple, which he helped prepare for the building of. Oh, David, a great man on the horizon of, of all of redemptive history. And if we look before him for someone who also held multiple offices, there we see Melchizedek standing out as a unique character, even though up to that time of David he had only been mentioned in one chapter of Scripture. And so he is something of a, a textual or literary phenomenon. Melchizedek. Melchizedek, a name which fascinates us. Who is this man and how do we really pronounce his name? He is one back in the mists of time who we know about because of the revelation of God. It's not family rumor. Uh, it's not some legend. It's the written word of God under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Out of all the things in all the history of the world before the time of Moses, of which we could be told, God chooses in Genesis 14 to tell us about this man who held the offices of king and priest. And a literary feature of the names is that they let us know something about him and about his reign. He is the king of righteousness, we're told. The translation of his name in verse 2, it says, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. 
And so his name and the name of the place over which he rules lets us know that his rule and his priestly service are adorned with the blessing of God and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is not just any pagan king. Uh, This is not like the king of Sodom or the king of Gomorrah. Whenever you must deal with the king of Sodom or the king of Gomorrah, you would always need to keep two eyes open, one on the front and one on the back, because there were men you just simply could not trust. But this man, Melchizedek, he was a man of righteousness and a king of peace. He was one whose life and work and ministry was not against the Lord God Almighty, but in favor of Him. He is identified as priest of the Most High God. You know, folks just don't uh, hang up a shingle and declare themselves to be priests of the Most High God in truth. Oh, there are plenty of people who hang up a sign. Usually it's neon or, or some sort of fancy logo associated with it. Maybe they buy TV time or or space in the newspaper, or on the internet, and, and they claim to be the representative of God and, and all sorts of power and glory to shine from them. But Melchizedek was different. The proof of the pudding in his case was not even just in the tasting. It's not just that he was a man of peace and righteousness. It was also that God had appointed him to these offices, that God had chosen him, that he was one moved and used by God to bless His holy name and to further the whole purpose of redemption and the coming of the Messiah. Oh, Melchizedek, he's not just a literary phenomenon, although he's that. He was also a real historic phenomenon and one who should turn our head and cause us to wonder out loud, Lord, what are you doing through this man of Melchizedek? The Scripture tells us that Melchizedek is revealed uniquely because he possesses a unique priesthood. You see, his priesthood is said to be eternal, and therefore he has some affinity or likeness with God in that way. Verse 3 of Hebrews 7 says, He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, certainly what's being referred to here is a literary phenomenon. Yes, there is no genealogy of him given back in Genesis chapter 14. He pops up on the pages of redemptive history by the choice and inspiration of God without any background given. Yes, he is one who is a priest because... He served and served and he the Son of God and our Lord and
confess to you, the, the science and the history of this is too much for me to, to get my head around. I don't know the exact details about this man. We are given such tantalizing truths to hold on to, but we're left with so many more questions. But this we do know, that he is a man of personal character and of life, which testifies to his close relationship with God. He is a man whose calling is unique and only from the Lord God Almighty. And he is a man who plays a decisive role in redemptive history, not only in ministering and blessing Abraham, the patriarch, but also in preparing the way for the coming of Jesus Christ our Lord. I can't tell you all the ins and outs about John the Baptist. And I can't tell you all the ins and outs about Melchizedek either. But the word is true and sure, and he is a man unique and whose life deserves our careful and close attention. You know, it's not unusual for us to find literary or, or historic features even in our own families that we don't plumb the depths of. Uh, recently, our family in, inherited a number of items from... Uh, uh, from a deceased family member. And, and there has been an angel in the congregation who went with me through a lot of this. And praise the Lord, she encouraged uh, my family and I to throw away about half of what we had found. But you know, there's one item that I don't think is in the lot. I think that got distributed to another branch of the family. And it's a very unusual cup. It's a cup in the shape of a dog's snout. Now, before I lose you here, if you were of Scottish descent, you would know this is a very great and noble thing because uh, Scottish uh, uh, lairds would sit upon their horse and, and they would drink out of this cup holding the snout of the, of the dog. And, and this was supposed to either celebrate great victory in battle or, or bring great, uh, um, well, hopeful blessing from God. I, I, I don't know quite what that says about my Scottish forefathers, but... Uh, at any rate, it was a great and noble thing. And, and, you know, this has been passed down through the family, and there's a note inside of it uh, penned a hundred years ago which says, uh, this cup was used at the Battle of Bannockburn by our forebearers. Well, how those Rankins love one another. Um, having dug into our family genealogy, I, I have great doubts that we were there um, in any great numbers or in any great august sort of role. Uh, my suspicion is, is that this is a cheap uh, foreign replica which somehow got snuck into the China cabinet in order to make us all feel better about ourselves. <laughs> but the good news of the gospel is that Melchizedek is not a dog snout. He's a real man with a real place in history that we are told about by the inspiration of God that we might have the message true and sure not by the shaky hand of some uh, failing earlier relative. God has told us here how he's used the life of this man, that we might have confidence and see more clearly our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek, you see, is the one who blessed Abraham and received tithes from him. Even though Abraham was the patriarch, he was the superior party in the relationship. That is a breathtaking and astounding thing because verse 7 is true. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
Now, don't recoil from that kind of language as if someone is being put down. All of us, in the web of relationships in which we live, we are both superiors and inferiors in various degrees and webs of our relationship. Do you have a boss? You have a superior. Uh, Do you have a child? You have an inferior in the web of relationships. Not that one doesn't matter and the other does. Not that the rights or responsibilities of the other can be trampled. No. God has ordered in his word the way we are to live with those above us and below us and, and those that stand on the same plane with us. And Melchizedek, by Abraham coming and bowing down and giving him a tithe portion of all he had gained is indicating that Melchizedek is indeed truly a a priest of God and truly one superior to himself. And so the patriarch and his descendants find themselves bowing down in this one act in Genesis chapter 14 to a man and to a priesthood superior to anything in the Mosaic law. We've just been through Christmas. You've had the opportunity not only to open gifts from those you love, but also to give them. Is this not a way in which we show our esteem and our affection and our connection one to another? Uh, Does not uh, the boss throw a party and, and serve something other than peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to those that serve him well? Yes, we know what it's like for a superior to bless an inferior. And, and we know what it's like for someone who, who is below someone else to come and give them a gift of esteem and appreciation for all that they have done. That is what Father Abraham was doing as he came and as he bowed down and as he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. He was showing us the debt of love that he owed not to that man, per se, but to that man's God and to the call upon that man's life. To God Almighty, Father Abraham bowed down through bowing down to his servant, the priest, King Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to that of Levi's. Levi's priesthood established in the Mosaic Code and order. Levi's priesthood having a central Role in the religious life of Israel, the sacrifices in the tabernacle and temple, the calls to worship, the teaching from the word of God of the people, all of these functions were given to the Levites. Uh, They were not given their own distinct land, but they were sprinkled among the people that they might leaven the whole lump to the glory of God. And with no land, how were they to be supported? They were to receive tithes. It was their right to receive those tithes that the people of God might be blessed through them. But Abraham and his family were the ones through whom Levi came. And they bowed down to this one who was a foreigner, who was another, who was a king and priest of God, but not of their lot per se. Melchizedek was greater than Levi. He was both a king and a priest. And Levi was not. Levi was just a priest. He was just one who ministered in the house of God according to the narrow commandments of God. He couldn't make it up as he went along. He was, he was one who had a rule book, who had 
a set of directions, a recipe of all that he was to do in his public ministry and life. Melchizedek was one called directly by God and placed into an enormous office of responsibility and discretion. Oh, Melchizedek's priesthood was eternal. That is indicated literarily and textually at the very least. And if our forefathers are correct, then perhaps even more was going on that in his, more than even is dreamt of in our philosophy. Uh, maybe Melchizedek was one who was eternal in some personal and greater sense than we can understand. But the reality is this. Levi had a beginning. Levi had an end. Levi's ministry had a beginning and an end. You see, there would be a terminus to the life and ministry of Levi, even to the ministry of the priesthood in his order. That would come to an end. We have proof of that this morning. I don't think I hear the sound of a bull or a goat or a turtle dove anywhere within my ears. You have come to worship the Lord. You have come to sing praises to Him, but you have not brought a sacrifice to be slaughtered here on the altar because that old way of pointing to Jesus and pointing to Calvary and His death upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, that old way of pointing us to trust in Him alone for our salvation, that old way has now been fulfilled. And so the Levitical priesthood is over. But Melchizedek's priesthood, it continues. And it particularly continues through the one who is even greater than Melchizedek himself. Oh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And in Abraham's paying, Levi was paying too because his superior was Abraham. The one through whom his office was appointed lay in Abraham's loins. Oh, Levi had to pay. Father Abraham paid to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was blessed. He was blessed as both Abraham and Levi in him bowed down. You see, Levi needed a blessing. Levi needed the, that status and, and that ministry from God's priest of a higher order. Levi was not the fount of every blessing. Melchizedek was representing the fount of every blessing. And the one who would come in his order, in his train, who is the fount of blessing to us all. Jesus, you see, is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a divine person. He is one who possesses an internal priesthood. We're told that directly in verse 16. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 14, it is evident that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus is not in the Levitical priesthood. He was of a different family line. But he is appointed a priest by his heavenly father. He was called as one to intercede for us in prayer and to sacrifice his life for us that we might live eternally. His life, though sacrifice, was indestructible. 
because He Himself is not just a man. He is also God, God in the flesh, who lives eternal and was resurrected from the dead by the power of the Father and the power of the Spirit and even by His own power, the power of the Son. Jesus is a divine person. He is God. He is one who dwells in the, in the unity, in the light, in the life of the triune God. Jesus Christ looks at us with human eyes, but behind those human eyes are a person who is divine. Behind those human eyes are a person who knows the inner life of God Himself. He doesn't just tell us about God in some third-hand sort of way. He is God speaking to us with a human tongue that He personally owns and directs. He is God revealing to us what the glorious life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is. Of all that God has done, of all that He calls us to be who have been made in His image. By contrast, He shows us how far short we fall. And by the blood of His own veins does He die that we might live and share that life and glory with Him. Oh, the Father. The Father has appointed the second person of the Trinity to live in fellowship with us on the level of human, that His life indestructible might not be held by death when He dies for us, but rather that He might be resurrected and live for our blessing and glory. It's not just that Jesus died to cancel the sins of old. It's that Jesus died, yes, to pay for those sins and propitiate God's wrath, but also to be resurrected by His indestructible life, that He might live every day to care and minister for you. You see, it's not that He used to be your priest during the time of His earthly ministry. Jesus is now your priest. He now intercedes for you. He now cares for you. He now watches over you. Perhaps you watched that crystal ball come down in New York. Perhaps you uh, were awoken late at night uh, by all the fireworks and hoopla concerning the passing of the new year. It's a very exciting thing to talk about the page turning, the wheel rotating, and the new time coming. But the good news of the gospel is that God is God not just of the past, but also of the present and the future. That Jesus is Lord of 2014, just like He was in 2013 and before. That the one who calls us to Himself is mighty and able to save and care and protect and direct. Even you, even in your life, even with all your disappointment and need, perhaps you're discouraged as you face a new year. Perhaps you're worried about your own health or or that of someone you love. Uh, Maybe you're concerned about how the bank account is going to hold up or or what sort of pressures there are out in the the wider economy or in politics or or on the stage of, of world relations. There are so many things in this life to overwhelm us. Where is your comfort and stay? Where is your hope and ground that is firm where you can stand? The author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us that it's in the order of Melchizedek 
which is not transitory but is permanent, that the one who occupies that chair, the one who stands and prays for us and cares for our souls, that he is indestructible, that he is mighty and able, that he cannot just carry us through and squeak us by, that he can see us through triumphantly in all that we need. And that he knows better than we do what we need, that he is mighty and able to save. Oh, Jesus is the one who kills death by his death and triumphs o'er the grave. And he does so for you. You see, he intercedes for you so that he can save you forever. Did you see in verse 25? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's not that he uh, engages in prayer for us every once in a while. It's not that he uh, did that, checked that block, he showed his love for us, and now he's moved on to more important people and things. No, he always lives. His priesthood continues. It continues as long as he continues. His life is eternal. And so you will always have him praying for you. You never need to fear that he's fallen asleep on the job or that you haven't caught his eye or that he doesn't know about your situation. He knows it all. He knows you better than you know yourself. And in his Melchizedekian type priesthood, he is able to bless and save to the uttermost. Think of the person that you prayed for more than any other. Maybe down through the years you prayed for a, a parent or a child. Maybe a friend or a neighbor. Maybe a spouse. Think of all the times you prayed for them and those times that you regret that you forgot or failed to pray. Maybe you only prayed once a day and you wish you could have prayed twice. Maybe you prayed once a week and you feel like you should have prayed ten times a week. Think of the people that have prayed for you. Those that you don't even realize at times are praying for you and you later hear, you know, I've been praying for you. The Lord laid it on my heart. And I've been praying for you, and I trust that the Lord has answered my prayers. Tell me how he's blessed you. Prayer is a wonderful and powerful means of grace. And Christian fellowship and the communion of the saints is sweet to our souls. But sweeter more than all is the taste of the prayer of Christ to the soul of a believer that the Savior of all the universe, that the Savior of all His people would care for you and pray for you individually in all of your need. He is mighty and is a priest forever in your behalf. You see, He is in that position not just because He happened to have the right genetic makeup. He's not just in that family line. He has been appointed by God through an oath. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
The Lord has sworn, and the Lord will not change His mind. You are a priest forever, we hear. You see, what God tells us is true. But what God swears to, what God takes an oath to upon the pain and on the basis of His own character and life and being, that is even the more sure sure and true to us. You remember worship in the Old Testament? The people of God were told to worship, were they not? And so the patriarch would, would build an altar and would offer sacrifices and his sons after him. And God revealed that they were to build a tabernacle and, and that the children of Abraham were to construct it in a certain way and, and they were to carry out certain rites there. They were to give glory to God as he had appointed. And eventually there was to be a temple. The tabernacle was fulfilled by the temple. And so the temple with its stones one upon another, the the cedar smell in that place, the the glory of God in the showbread and, and the holy of holies and in the smoke of the sacrifices rising to the heavens, God had commanded that that be done. But then it was all fulfilled by something greater still, by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And his role as priest, and his role as the one to be sacrificed, was what God had promised and sworn from before time began that he would never change his mind on. There would be no modification. There would be no change in this fact that Jesus is your great high priest, that he is in the order of Melchizedek eternally interceding for you and caring for you. And so he is not just God to us, He is God in Himself, and He lets us know what God is like on the inside forever, not just for a season. And as our prophet and our priest and our king, possessing three offices more than any other, the other with just two as hors d'oeuvres, as little hints, as signposts pointing to the coming of the true Messiah, of the true mediator, he blesses all and he receives tithes from all in his church. And he is revealed in Scripture thereby as being superior to all others. No one, no one holds a candle to Jesus. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. And all of this year and the rest of your life is spent serving and glorifying Him because He is your priest. He is your great high priest. Not just according to the order of Aaron and Levi, but a priest forever like Melchizedek. He is the best ever priest that you will have. And so, even a sinner like you and a sinner like me can be saved by a priest like that. Saved to the uttermost. And trust, therefore, in that one with all your heart, and you will be his forever. Let us pray.